everyone, my name is Maria Thomas and I work for Allianz Research, a global team of economists, strategists, sector advisors and foresight experts of the Allianz Group, led by Ludovic Suber. Over the past few months, we've seen central banks in advanced economies raise interest rates for the first time in years to cope with record-breaking inflation. So in this special season of tomorrow, we wanted to look at the end of zeronomics. What will the new era of higher interest rates mean for the global economy and capital markets, households and companies? Let's find out with the experts from Allianz Research. According to the latest Allianz Global Wealth Report, 2021 might have been the last year of the old new normal, with bullish stock markets powered by monetary policy bringing handsome benefits to household wealth. In this episode, we speak with Arne Holzhausen, Head of Insurance, Wealth and Trend Research, and Patricia Pelayo Romero, Economist for Insurance and ESG, to find out what the end of zeronomics means for households. Hello, Arne and Patricia. Welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, hello, Maria. Thanks for having us here. Hi, Maria. Thank you. Okay, so you know that this season we are doing something a little bit different because we're looking at the end of zeronomics. So my very first question for you is, how did the era of low interest rates in advanced economies shape household wealth over the past decade? Yeah, when the, inter when the central banks first lowered interest rates all the way to zero, there was a lot of complaints, especially also from savers. But with hindsight, if you look at the numbers, you can see it was not a bad decade, especially since the years of the great financial crisis, financial assets around the world increased and increased quite dramatically. I mean, even in the last three years, we have seen uh, growth of financial assets worldwide on average above 10%. That's really amazing. And there's a very simple reason for that because in the end this zero interest rate helped asset prices it was a, a driver for asset prices to go to new records and new heights and it was not only the equity market boom but we can also see it in in other uh, asset markets as well especially also real assets real estate for example housing assets so all were lifted by this low interest rates or the zero interest rate policies and most households, the owners of these assets, benefited very nicely from that development. But as far as I know, Patricia, the, the situation on the debt side was a little bit different, wasn't it? Yeah, the situation on the debt side is, uh, you know, if we look at the other side of the coin, it's quite uh, worrisome, especially because last year uh, debt worldwide clocked in 7.6 this is a number and a figure that we had not seen since uh, the beginning of the or or the, or the previous to the global financial crisis and right now um debt servicing is becoming more expensive that's just a fact and with the the rise of inflation that started during the pandemic and its relentlessness in some countries we are experiencing a cost of living crisis um and there's this phenomenon that we discussed as well on the last wealth report uh, that is called uh, buy now, pay later as a service. But in some advanced economies like in the UK or in the US or some other European countries, it has devolved into a more uh, kind of eat now, pay later phenomenon. Uh, people are actually taking out debt to buy food. And with uh, rising interest rates, this cannot really be good news. So tell us more about that then. So what do you expect to happen now that inflation is on the rise and, you know, if the Fed, the ECB and other central banks are hiking interest rates? 
Yeah, very simply put, the party is over because we have already experiences this year where we can see that equity markets corrected more than 20% since the start of the Ukrainian war. And this will probably or very likely continue in the next months or even the next year. So, and we already see that this has an impact on the financial assets of private households. Households will feel the pinch. And according to our calculations, we expect that this year, for example, on the global level again, we will see some nominal declines of around 2% to 3%. And I mean, it sounds not too much because on the other hand, I mean, inflation is also lifting up bank deposits because these are nominal assets. But if you just include also the, the real development, the, the purchasing power, the loss of purchasing power due to the inflation, then we come up with numbers of 10%. That means that a tenth of the wealth of households on average will be destroyed or will be deleted in this year alone. And unfortunately, the outlook for the coming year at least is not much better. So this is really hard times for most savers around the world. And so will some households in some regions weather the storm better than others? Well, I think that uh, we shouldn't dwell too much on the on the obvious that, you know, with rising costs in generous welfare states, the population will probably suffer less than in countries with um, low financing possibilities. But if we zone into the wealth and the distribution of wealth, for the countries that we have more data and that we have more high frequency data, especially, we can already see an impact. So, for example, in the U.S., much like in the financial crisis, we are already seeing the higher wealth brackets taking a hit. In that way, um, crises are somewhat of an equalizer because most of the higher net wealth individuals have a large share of their wealth in stocks. Um, I don't think that those of us that would like to see more equality in the world want to level the playing field to lower standards of living. Um, so what we see is that initially it is the richer households that take the hit, but the longer term effect is felt by the lower income deciles. As we um, hike our way into a slowdown, employment is expected to fall. And in the Fed's words, to levels that are historically associated with economic crisis. But if we zone in on household debt, for example, since last year, we saw um, very harsh numbers. The housing crisis, for example, in London might have people facing a trade-off that is either a 6% mortgage interest rate or a 33% rent increase. It's being between a rock and a hard place. Even in the U.S., a household making $250,000 might be struggling to make ends meet. Uh, and, and in Europe, not to say that heating might be a make-it-or-break-it situation for some households. Um, this is also a phenomenon that we see in Latin America, where poverty is on the rise, and um, some Asian countries also have issues. It's, it's, uh, it's a worldwide phenomenon. Okay, and this sort of leads... Into my next question, which well, I was going to initially ask you, you know, how wealth distribution has changed within countries and is inequality getting worse? You kind of addressed that already by saying, um, by providing the outlook right now. But is there anything else that we should know about um, inequality? Is your outlook for inequality changing over the long term? 
I think it's very, very difficult to have a forecast on inequality, how it develops, will develop over the next coming years. But what we have did for sure, we looked a little bit deeper into the past and tried to, to really investigate the situation with that distribution. I mean, I mentioned that this overall on average this was a very good decade for most households because they benefited from the equity or from the boom in asset markets. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you can realize that the distribution did not improve overall. I mean, even on the contrary, if you look closer to the middle class, to the wealth middle class, we can see, can see that their portion of the overall wealth pie in most markets we investigated even declined over the last 10 years. So that means it was so, was not really a dramatic decline, I have to say. So, and given the, the difficulties to, to, to measure these things, because still data on distribution are very scarce and you have to come up with some estimates. You can even claim to say, well, overall, the situation on wealth distribution has not changed much over the last 10 years. Fine. But then you have to take into account that it was good years and this was booming years, booming years on the equity market, but also real growth was not too bad. We had moderate growth. We had tremendous improvements on labor markets in many countries. Unemployment fell to record lows and even against such an economic background we were not able to improve the situation of distribution and distribution has to be really be improved because we have a very big starting point i mean if we talk about wealth distribution we talk about that 10 percent of the population normally owned 70 to 80 percent of all financial assets and that the middle class i mean we talk about the middle class but normally they have probably 30 to 40 percent 30 or even less of the wealth pie so this is really a situation that is heavily distorted and if we are not able to improve it over a decade of reasonable growth and booming markets i i fear what will happen if we now enter into leaner years i mean this is something that we really see that the last 10 years was a waste opportunity on on distributional policies okay so what does that mean for policymakers well, for one, there is the urgent task of mitigating the cost of living crisis. If it is not at the forefront of policymaking, it should be. In Europe, we are facing an energy crisis and there are heterogeneous efforts to mitigate the impact for households. Um, we are all nervous. Um, but for households, the trade-off uh, might be, as I mentioned before, eat or heat. And if you've ever been in a cold country, you know what a tough choice this is. So there should be, and there are, targeted measures for the most vulnerable households, whether it is in the shape of subsidies or the well-known cash transfers. And we're all here for supporting, mitigating the impact for households. But there is a risk if we, enable, if we um, encourage gas price caps. So European countries are not the only ones that are trying to protect households from high gas prices. Some major Asian importers like um, Japan or South Korea have enacted measures to limit the price faced by households. And what we have seen is that it has not affected demand. So we haven't seen a lower demand of energy. Um, we want to avoid that there are these distortions in energy markets. We need to lower demand. The fiscal costs of energy subsidies are enormous. One key issue is that we lose the signaling 
for households that enjoy from lower in energy prices and might be um, less likely to uh, turn off the heating or to uh, lower the thermostat or take shorter hot showers. So even if we can pay for, for uh, more gas, where do we get it from? The sustained high demand would put pressure on LNG gas prices. And this would put pressure not only in the European market, but also in the global market. We need to signal households to consume less. And an answer to this could be government subsidizing gas savings, paying basically households for consuming less gas. And with a cost of living crisis, this might be uh, an answer that would be welcomed by the population. Yeah, sounds like a win-win situation to me. And as you said, Patricia, I think for the next two years, two, three years, this will be keeping uh, policymakers busy to, to mitigate the blow of the energy crisis. But we should not lose sight of the mid to long term. And here to, to end on a more positive note, I'm not too pessimistic. I mean, if, if you look, for example, at the growth drivers, there are some important growth drivers just in place. First of all, for sure, the green transformation, which, which has to unleash and unlock a huge amount of investments, private and, and, and public investments, and this will create growth, this will create new work, and new, new jobs, and then you have for sure the new technologies. We have digitalization, we have artificial intelligence, we have robots, all these are on the verge of breakthrough into making really big difference. And if you this couple with this investment boom, you can expect that this will also have an impact on productivity, on productivity growth, because this was the, the elephant in the room that over the last decade we have not enough productivity growth. Now Now, this might change. And last but not least, we see the demographic change. We see that from from we will enter an era where the workforce and the global workforce is in decline. This is totally different to the experience of the last uh, two, three decades. There was plenty where the, the supply of labor was more or less unlimited because we could tap into the Chinese labor market, the Indian, Southeast Asia, because all these markets were integrated in the global division of labor. So There was unlimited supply of labor. Now we enter an era where we see a chronic shortage of, of skilled labor. And with, with the right policies in place, reskilling, upskilling, education, you can make a lot of the situations. This could enable policymakers to bring more people in more and better paid jobs. So I think the constellation is not too bad. The stars are well aligned. We have all the ingredients for inclusive growth in place investments, new technology, productivity growth, high demand for skilled labor. So we just have to make the best out of it. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Arne and Patricia. Thank you for having us, Maria. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the full report we just spoke about on our website. We'll leave a link in the show notes. If you'd like to discover more of our research, you can also follow the Ludonomics newsletter on LinkedIn. We'll leave a link down below for that too. If you like the podcast, please send it to any of your friends who might like it too, and leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. In the meantime, stay tuned for the next episode.